Lord, we pray tonight as well for uh, this time that we have before your throne of grace to study your word, to come to learn (coughs) a greater uh, amount of of wisdom and, and, and understanding that we need, Lord, to to live our lives in these days in, uh, that uh, uh, seem to look at the uh, coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ uh, in a very in the very near future, and so, Lord, we we pray for that uh, godly wisdom to come through Your Holy Spirit to each and every one of us, that uh, Lord we might receive the understanding of Your Word. Pray, Father, for those who may have questions about you and questions about your word, that, Lord, you will speak and, and bring understanding and conviction where it is necessary to the heart that is in need of you tonight. We pray these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's turn to Isaiah 35. Isaiah 35. (coughs) The wilderness and the wasteland shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. Shall blossom abundantly and rejoice, even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the excellence of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the excellency of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are fearful hearted, be strong, do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. I mentioned in last week's study that chapters 34 and 35 deal with both the day of the Lord's vengeance, which of course was in chapter 34, the vengeance and judgment of the Lord, as well as the blessings that God's people will enjoy under Messiah's rule and reign. And that's where we are tonight in chapter 35. But in chapter 34, we see that uh, there it was it dealt with the judgment to come upon the sinful world. And so we arrive now at the millennial blessing. Now you'll be able to see immediately and clearly the contrast between the two chapters. From the destruction of the armies of the world and the desolation of the land to the delightful conditions which will prevail in this world after Satan himself is bound and Christ is enthroned as sovereign king of the universe. As a matter of fact, to coincide with that thought and that idea, when you look at Revelation chapter 20, for just a moment, verses 1 through 4, just to kind of lay down a foundation as to where we're going in all of this. It says in verse 1, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, 
and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things he must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones and they sat on them. And judgment was committed to them. And then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And so as we enter into chapter 35, we seem to be moving from that picture of great destruction, which many consider to be uh, Armageddon, or the Battle of Armageddon, where all the nations gathered together in that valley of uh, Megiddo in Israel, a place that is actually big enough when you go to Israel and you sit on, uh, you stand atop uh, of Mount Carmel and, and, and you look over this one area of this valley called Megiddo, and you realize this, this whole valley would be filled and it's big enough to, to fill many, many different armies. And certainly as we've read through many passages in, in prophecy and prophetic, uh, in the prophetic books that there is coming a time when all the nations will come against God's people and against God himself. But this is really just the foundation of what we're seeing as, as Isaiah continues to go on with near fulfillments uh, and uh, with Assyria uh, and the Assyrian armies that were already poised in battle to, to come against Jerusalem and, and, and Judah. And the far fulfillment that is to come, which is what we just read in Revelation. So with all that in mind, as far as this, this consummation of the ages, as it were, the armies gathering against God and His people. Consider the heart of the prophet Isaiah. And how thrilled he must have been as he looked forward to this time of peace and righteousness that would follow the long years of strife and suffering throughout all of human history. The creation itself would, would share in the blessings of that day. As we read, the wilderness, the wasteland shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice. Uh, it, it sounds somewhat metaphoric. It sounds somewhat allegorical as it were. You know, the deserts would rejoice and, but if this is the creation. This is something that we not only see in the Old Testament here in figurative language, we, we see it as well in the New Testament as we'll see in just a moment. But we ended the last chapter with a picture of a desolate wilderness. Notice uh, just a part of what we read last time. That in the day of the Lord's vengeance, the year of recompense, that this stream shall be turned into pitch, its dust into brimstone, the land into burning pitch. Later on, thorns shall come up in its palaces, nettles and brambles. And so it just gives this picture of, of complete and total desolation, you see. And so from this picture of a desolate wilderness, we see it move into this wilderness that wasn't going to remain a wilderness no longer to be just desolate and dry and, and, and empty. For it says in verse 1, The wilderness and the wasteland shall be glad for them as 
you know, we go back and, and to look at those who've been suffering through uh, all of these torments and, and, and whatnot. But the wilderness and the wasteland shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice, even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the, the excellence of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the, the excellency of our God. The Lord is going to transform the earth once again into a garden of Eden. And we are told in Scripture that all of creation and even all of nature looks eagerly for the coming of the Lord because nature knows that it's going to be set free from the curse of sin. That is what it's been under from the very moment that man sinned in, in the Garden of Eden. From that very moment, everything began to deteriorate. Everything began to get, uh, you know, to, to be aged with time, even though it took a long time. I mean, in those days, people could live six, seven, eight hundred, nine hundred years. But it began to decrease. A man's age began to come down to what we would consider more reasonable, at least, the lifespan of men and women. But everything else, you know, there was this beautiful garden, but all of a sudden that which was taking care of that garden, that, 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 that uh, uh, you know, that, that, that blanket of, of, of of, of, of water and steam and however it was that God had it in that perfect condition as he made it began to go away and, and certainly everything then began to age but all because of sin we're told in Isaiah 55 though the creation awaits the restoration Isaiah 55 verse 12 says for you shall go out with joy and be led forth with peace, or you be led out with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth into singing before you. And all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress tree, and instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree. And it shall be to the Lord for a name, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. So what has been desolate for a time is now going to be fruitful and fertile and, and, and just flourish in, in a great and awesome way. I mentioned the New Testament uh, passage in Romans chapter 8. The Apostle Paul in verse 18 and following says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation. Notice the expectation of creation. I wanted to ask you a question today. What are you here expecting from God? We believe that we have been given because we've been made in the image of God, that we have the capacity, we have the wisdom, we have with the mental capacity and all, as well as the spiritual capacity as believers in Jesus Christ, to expect things from God. God wants us to expect great things from Him. So I want to ask you the question again. I mean, what, what great things are you expecting from God tonight? Because I hope you didn't come into this place just to spend a few hours or a couple of hours or... You know, an hour and a half or whatever it is. If I keep talking, it may be two hours, but I don't know. Point is, you didn't come in here just to just. Yeah, yeah. I think you came in here to to, to hear from God. You came in to hear to you came in here to receive something from the Lord. I hope and pray that that's every time that you gather together in this place and we open up the scriptures and say, God, speak to my heart. But here it says, for the earnest expectation of the creation. That includes us, as well as everything that was created by God. 
eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. So we, along with creation, are waiting with expectation for what God is going to do. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. That little phrase, birth pangs, is an indication that Paul is thinking prophetically. The birth pangs, things that are yet to come, things that are going to have to be fulfilled the prophecies of old to be fulfilled in the time of Jesus' return. Paul was expecting, folks, people need to understand, Paul is expecting the Lord to come at any moment. Now, we know that the Lord didn't come in Paul's time, in Peter's time, but yet they still expected it, as should we. And can you imagine that all of creation is expecting it, the coming of the Lord, to set everything right, to set everything straight. Go back to the Psalms and consider just the rejoicing of creation for the things that God does. Psalm 96 verse 11 says, Let the heavens rejoice and let the earth be glad. Let the sea roar in all its fullness. Let the field be joyful in all that is in it. And then all the trees of the woods will rejoice before the Lord for He is coming. You see that? For He is coming. For He is coming. For He is coming to, the, to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with His truth. So all of creation is waiting for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're the ones, that's, <laughs> we're the ones that can read, we're the ones that can think, we're the ones that can write, we're the ones that can, that can expect. And shouldn't we not be expecting the coming of the Lord? Should we not be expecting the things that God has said He's going to do? The heavens are rejoicing, the earth is glad, the seas are roaring, the fields joyful, the trees of the woods are even clapping their hands. Every time we get a you know, windstorm, they clap their hands. Maybe today is the day those trees are saying. <laughs> Psalm 98, verses 7 through 9 says, Let the sea roar in all its fullness, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers uh, clap their hands, let the hills be joyful together before the Lord. For he is coming to judge the earth. The picture is all of creation is waiting for Christ to come. With righteousness he shall judge the world and the peoples with equity. So going back to this passage, the passage in our text implies that the desert is going to be more beautiful and even more fruitful. Uh, I should say fruitful. Uh, get my tongue right. It's going to be more beautiful and even more fruitful than Lebanon and the cedars of Lebanon that the Bible talks of much. Carmel, the beauty of, the, of, of that fertile valley that we were talking about earlier. Sharon, the same thing, just a beautiful place uh, that was so fertile and, and, and vibrant and, uh, and all. And even, even though these three places were at one time the most beautiful places in the land, the desert is going to be even more beautiful when Christ comes. And what should be of great interest to all of us is that today, Israel is, is a fruitful and a fertile land. Not as fruitful and as fertile as it's going to be. Besides, we still have to see this stuff happen where it's become, going to be desolate again. But for now, there's an indication 
about God loving His people so much and an indication that the Lord continues to favor His people and has placed them where He wants them. And so He says, as I put My people there, I'm going to show you that I'm, I'm going to do what I say I'm going to do. I've made the land fruitful again. So only God can do that. Only God can do that. I mean, uh, the Israelis and the Jews that have been, had been scattered for centuries in, in, in various parts of the world, all gathered together at a certain time. They come in, they, they, you know, God opens the doors, the United Nations votes in 1948, you know, by one vote, which is the vote of the United States, to let the, uh, uh, let the, the state of Israel exist. On day one of their existence, the nations that surrounded them were ready to cast them into the sea. To this day, they still exist. Why? Because of God's hand upon them. It's, not, it's, it's more than miraculous. It's the fulfilling of Scripture. So God allowed us to see that He could make that land fruitful. In spite of every day they worry and, and they, they sense that, that, that uh, you know, the, the way that the nations are looking at them and wanting to come against them. Every day. It, it, that's how they live. That's how they've lived for 60 years. And yet in all that time, more fruit has grown in that area than many other places in the world. More flowers are grown. It's just a beautiful place. Environmentalists tell us, and I should say the right environmentalists, not Al Gore. I'm beginning to think that, you know, because he had said that he invented the Internet, that he also invented global warming, but anyway... Environmentalists tell us that the deserts of the world are enlarging every year and obviously not reducing in size. This is just science, just scientific. Drought and soil erosion are speeding up the process. That's just obvious and scientific. And of course, pollution and smog are filling the earth. There used to be a time you could drive from here, you know, all the way to L.A., and you can drive through Phoenix, and by the time you get to the border of, of California, a few miles into California, you began to see the, the smog from L.A., you know. Now, the smog from L.A. has just met the smog from Phoenix, and you have smog with you for a long time. It's the way it is. Phoenix has grown tremendously, over 2 million people over there now. And a lot of them came from California and brought their smog with them. <laughs> So they just brought it all together. It's gotten worse and worse. It's filling the earth. But all of this is going to be reversed, you see. All of this is going to be reversed in the millennial reign of Christ. And that beautiful statement in verse 1, the desert shall rejoice and, and blossom as the rose, will be wonderfully realized. It's going to be realized. It's something that we can look forward to. What a marvelous day it will be when the curse of sin is finally removed from God's creation because that is what's caused the ugliness of this world. Even though much of, the, much of the, the world is beautiful because God has allowed it to stay that way, but what man touches never turns, never turns pretty. <laughs> I, I think of cities. We all kind of like the cities we live in, maybe. Or maybe the cities we've come from. We all like to visit other places. A few years ago when we went to help after 9-11 in, in New York City, uh, 
was a, just amazing to see the skyscrapers and to see just the enormity of the city itself. And you see these pictures and you wonder, you know, what man can do. The thing about it is, when you go back all the way back to after the fall, it was it was men like um, Cain who went out, and then after you know the ones that, that followed after the line of Cain that actually began to build the cities. The Bible says that man began to make brick. But everything that God ever made, He never made with brick. He always made with stone. Because God created stone. Man had to develop brick and mortar. And it showed how man had to work his way and labor and sweat to build the cities. So from some, some distance you could see a silhouette of a city and say, my, what a, what a grand thing that is. But just remember, get out into the midst of it and you see the ugliness and you see the sin and you see the wickedness of man. Cities are made by men. God is concerned about one city, the city of Jerusalem. And even then, it is the city of the new Jerusalem where his people will dwell in righteousness forever. The love that God has for a city that he has built himself. But the city of Zion, the city of Jerusalem, we talk about a lot. That's the city that he cares about on this earth. And with all due respect to a lot of other cities, it isn't Rome, and it isn't Salt Lake City, and it isn't Orlando, and it isn't New York City, and it isn't Geneva, and it isn't London, and it isn't Edinburgh and Glasgow. It's the city of Jerusalem. That's the city that God cares about. Time and time and time and time again, from page to page of the scriptures, that's where he has us to look. And that's what he cares about. What a marvelous day when the curse of sin is finally removed from God's creation. Verses 3 and 4 now. Strengthen, it says, the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are fearful hearted, be strong. Do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. What a grand statement that is. He says, don't fear, be strong. Be strong in the Lord. You know, Paul actually completes that statement in Ephesians chapter 6. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Because it's God who comes to save you. Be strong in the Lord. Not in yourself, because you're not strong. I mean, men are strong in some, you know, to a certain extent, you know. But, but, but nothing or no one can be as strong as the Lord. And when we come to that realization, you know, there are a lot of people today who are weak-handed and, and, and feeble-kneed, <laughs> who need to be trusting the Lord with all of their heart. And he says, be strong, do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. He's going to come and set things straight. He's, he's going to come with His recompense. He's going to give people what they deserve when they have turned away from Him. And when they have harmed his own people. For centuries on end, the people of the earth have greatly desired to be delivered, you see, from the countless troubles and problems that, that have affected humanity. I'm just saying in general, man has, 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 has been wanting to, to just be delivered from all of the ills and all of the sicknesses and, and, and the problems that has affected, 
affected this humanity. And even Solomon himself expressed this reality in a single verse of Scripture in the, in the book of Proverbs. He said in Proverbs 13, verse 12, Hope deferred makes the heart sick. Just that, just that statement itself. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. But when the desire comes, it is a tree of life. Hope deferred makes the, whole, or makes the heart sick. The simple translation of this verse is this. Hope that is delayed. Hope that is delayed makes the heart sick. But fulfilled desire, when it comes, is a tree of life. Hope deferred. The children of Israel continued to realize, you know, that their hope was, was delayed, being delayed and being delayed. A lot of it was because of them. A lot of it was because they weren't trusting in the, in the God who, who, uh, who loved them and, and, and made them His people. They weren't trusting in Him. And so hope deferred, hope that was delayed, made, made their hearts sick. They waited, oh God, oh God. Every time they put themselves in a situation where they were put into some kind of captivity, oh God, oh God, when are you going to come? Their hearts were sick until God would deliver them. And then for a short amount of time, oh, they rejoiced. But you see, the prophet Isaiah in this passage of our text uses the promise of the coming uh, kingdom to strengthen those in his day who were weak and afraid. He's saying to them, listen, strengthen the weak hand. Strengthen the weak hands. In other words, listen, the Lord's coming. Get strong. Be strong. Don't, 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 don't fear. He encourages them to lift up their eyes. He says, behold, your God will come. He encourages them to lift up their eyes and to look forward to the time when the Lord Himself will come down to the earth to end its travail and to bring in new and joyful conditions, which is the millennial kingdom. He says, encourage them. And certainly the coming judgment itself, you know, they're here, the people that are reading Isaiah's prophecy, uh, you know, uh, contemporarily, as it were, are reading and they're saying, hey, you know, Assyrians are coming. I mean, they've already taken all these other nations. They've already come and taken the northern kingdom of Israel. And they're right breathing down our necks. And so certainly the coming judgment would be enough to make the hands of anyone weak and the knees of anyone feeble. But if you can understand this from a spiritual context, if our hands are weak, then they are not working for the Lord. Understand this. That when our hands are weak, they're not working for the Lord. If our knees, which are used for our progressing as well as praying, you know, when, you, when you're walking, your knees are moving, aren't they? So the knees have some function. That function is to progress us, to move us forward. Without our knees, we can't move forward. But at the same time, it is also important to note that our knees are used for praying. And if our knees, which are used for progressing as well as praying, are feeble, then we aren't progressing as we should. In other words, in light of the coming restoration, we need to be strong and we need to get moving. And that is what he's saying to the Jews of his time. You need to be strong and you need to get moving here. You've got to be progressing. You've got to be moving toward the coming of the Lord. And in Hebrews chapter 12... There is a quote uh, from this verse right here in verse 3 to point out that even in the times of chastening from the Lord, we should take strength and courage from the Lord, knowing that His love and His grace has allowed the chastening. Hebrews 12 verse 12 says, Therefore strengthen the hands which hang down. Sound familiar? Strengthen the hands which hang down in the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet 
so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. Pray for that strength to be healed so that you can move forward progressing with the Lord, praying for God's wisdom, praying for God's strength, praying for God's word to begin to be activated in your life. All in all, our hearts are helped by the assurance and the confidence that the Lord will come and save. Listen, as Christians today, we know that Jesus is coming. That should be our motivation. We know that Jesus is coming. We should be motivated to live our lives for Christ. That is, what, that, that is really what is being said to, to the Jews waiting for the Messiah to come. Be strong. Be a good courage. Be progressing. Why? Because your Lord is coming. And then when Jesus came the first time, what happened? They missed Him. He came unto His own, and His own did not receive Him, but to as many as received Him, to them gave He the right to become the sons of God, Jew and Gentile, to as many as received His, his name. We have the assurance of His coming. We have the confidence that the Lord is coming to save us. That the Lord is coming to take us home. That the Lord is coming to bring us unto Himself. That the Lord is coming to take us to the places that He's already prepared for us. We are ready to, for that day. And I hope and pray that we are. The fact of the matter is that's what strengthens us. That's what strengthens the weak hands. So that when we have strong hands, they're not... You know, that strength comes from the Lord, but now we can do what needs to be done when He strengthens the feeble knees. He's strengthening us to progress maturely in Christ so that we might continue to trust Him for our daily bread, trust Him for our daily wisdom, trust Him for our daily uh, uh, portion of the Holy Spirit so that we can move on in the Lord until the day of Christ. And then in verse 5, we've got to move on here now because I'm ready to put it into the next gear here. Verse 5 says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Now remember, I just, I just mentioned about Jesus coming. What did Jesus do when He came? To show Himself as Messiah? What did He do? He healed blind eyes. He opened deaf ears. Then the, blind, the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the dead shall be unstopped, the lame shall leap like a deer. That happened with the apostles, as we studied last week, in the last couple of weeks. And the tongue of the dumb sing, for water shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. All that, again, pointing far to the, to the fulfillment at the coming of Christ, the second, the second coming. But when Jesus did come the first time, all the signs of the coming age were manifested as sickness and disease of every type fled at the sound of His voice or the touch of His hand. And the fact of the matter is, since that time, from that moment when Jesus began to heal the sick and, and raise the dead and so, so on and so forth, down through the ages, God continued to work. God worked through the apostles and the times of the apostles. God worked beyond the apostles and, and their disciples. God worked into the early church. And continued that work on till today. People have been healed by the, by the very touch of the Lord. People have been moved by the very voice of God to the very heart of their, uh, their being so that they could rise up and go into the nations to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Where did that come from? It didn't come from their own desires or their own 
figuring out. They, they did it because the Lord spoke to their hearts. They listened. The signs even follow the preaching of the apostles, as I said before, as we saw the past two weekends in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 3, verses 6 through 8, Peter was saying to this man who was lame from birth, he says, silver and gold I do not have, but what I have I give, I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and he lifted him up and immediately his feet and his ankle bones received strength. In other words, they straightened out. You talk about feeble knees being healed. He had never used his knees. Now they were strengthened enough for him to stand and to walk without even having to learn how to do it. He had never walked in his life. He had never stood in his life. And then what does he do after this? In verse 8, he, he, he leaping up, stood and walked and entered the temple with him, walking, leaping and praising God. In Acts chapter 5, a couple of uh, chapters later, in verses 14 through 16, it tells us, and believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches, that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. Also, a, a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. The work of God in the midst of the apostles. It's not even the millennium yet, but God is healing. Jesus is healing. Why? Because he's Messiah. And he came the first time to show himself to, to, to his own people. Here I am. But they did not receive him. And all, all these were but a foretaste of what shall be prevalent during Messiah's reign. In that thousand year reign of Christ that we read about in Revelation chapter 20. In that thousand year reign of Christ, all these things will be happening. And when the salvation of the Lord comes, extraordinary and supernatural provision is going to come with it. What was dry and useless will become well watered. It will become fruitful. That is why it is mentioned there. Streams in the desert. All of a sudden, water from where? Well, God has His reserves. God has His, his portion. God has His provision. God has His reserves. God has His reservoirs. We don't know where they are, but God knows where they are, and He's going to bring them. This is what He is saying. How wonderful to know that Jesus brought this provision into the very lives of His own people. Look at John 7, verses 38 and 39. He said, He who believes in Me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. But nonetheless, what he said was of great importance. He says, He who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So not only in, in what is going to take place in, in, in this uh, creation, but even to our very hearts, he says, when we are filled with the Holy Spirit, we're going to have rivers of living water flowing out of us. Reserves that we didn't have, but God had for us. And he gave them to us. And when he immersed us in his Holy Spirit, when he baptized us in his Spirit, when he filled us with his Spirit, when he came alongside of us to, to encourage us about our, our ministry to, to Christ, I mean, he gave us everything that we needed for life and godliness through Jesus Christ and his Spirit. And we have everything right now. There's not one thing that we need because we have Jesus Christ. What we probably need to do is believe what He said. We need to believe and trust what He said. 
There should be no reason for a believer in Jesus Christ to have to endure times of dryness. We all go through it. We all go through it, don't we? Nobody, nobody want to say amen to that. We all go through times of dryness. We've gone through them. Many times it's because of our own doing. Many times it's because we've, re, we've, we've rejected or we have uh, laid aside... We have ignored what the blessings of God are to us. But there's no reason for a believer in Jesus Christ to, have, to endure times of dryness. Why? Because out of us should be flowing rivers of living water with a source that never ends, which is Jesus. And especially when the power of Christ uh, to provide is present. And Jesus said, I'll be with you always, so I figure... If he's going to be with us always, then we always have the resource with us. So we should never endure times of dryness. But we do. I'm not saying it's right. I'm not saying we should. But when we begin to experience times of dryness, this is the point. When we begin to experience those times of dryness, it is time for us to call out upon Jesus, to call out to Jesus and say, Lord, Jesus, fill me, fill me, fill me. I've become an empty vessel. Fill me again with your Spirit. Fill me again. Rather than to try to sit there and try to figure things out yourself, I already figured out something. It makes no difference how much I figure out. It just never figures out that much unless I let God take care of it. It's a lot better if we let Him work His work in us than us try to figure it out. See, too often we listen to the people that say, you need to do this, you need to do that. Do this, don't do that. Can't you read the signs? I'll see if all you 60s fanatics are still here. <laughs> it's not a matter of us ought to be doing anything. It's a matter of us want to be doing the love of Christ in our lives. Want to be enjoying. Want to be living. Want to be just pouring out the love of Jesus. There is a Hebrew word. By the way... Let me read verse 7 because we've got to move on. Verse 7 says, The parched ground shall become a pool, and the thirsty land springs of water in the habitation of jackals where each lay. Now, some of you may have other translations that say other words like crocodiles or alligators or dragons even. A lot of, a lot of different animals in this one little word here. Uh, but that's not the word we're going to deal with. The habitation of jackals where each lay. There shall be glass, uh, grass with reeds and rushes. Well, there's this Hebrew word that, that is used to translate what we have in our text here as parched ground. And it literally means mirage. Parched ground is a mirage, which is an air reflection, an atmospheric phenomenon frequently seen in, in deserts, especially eastern deserts which is caused by the reflection of the hot rays of the sun. We all know what a mirage is. We actually see mirages out here sometimes. If it gets nice and hot, we see that air, you know, the, the air reflection and all of that. We see things moving out there. Oh, water. 
Hey, listen, there was a time when we didn't have all this bottled water. Remember those times? We used to get those, those skins and we used to hang on the front of our radiator. So the air would... How many of you remember those skins? Remember those? Put the big skin of water there, you know, and you put it in front of your radiator. And the, you're driving at like 95 miles an hour just to cool, cool it off. And then usually it was, you, you wanted it for yourself to drink because it was nice and cool after, you know, you stopped. But then half the time you had to pour it into your radiator because that thing was all hot and, you know. <laughs> or we had the harras, remember the harras? And then they told us that we're poisonous, so we all said, you know, <laughs> go fast. I mean, we, had, we didn't have bottled water like we could get it today. But here it is, you know, we, we see, you know, we see these mirages out there, oh, Water, water, and you keep driving and it kept going farther and further. That's a mirage. And it's important why this word is here. What used to be an illusion, you see. What used to be an illusion will one day become a glorious reality. The reality is there will be streams in the desert. There will be pools. Thirsty land will be springing forth with water. And what was once a habitation for dragons and crocodiles and alligators and jackals. Take your pick. I don't know. It will become a glorious garden. Where they live, it will be a glorious garden. Let's get to the real meat now. Verse 8, a highway shall be there. A highway. A highway shall be there and a road. And it, it shall be called the highway of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for others. Whoever walks the road, although a fool, shall not go astray. This particular verse expresses one of Isaiah's favorite themes, the theme of the highway. Already we've seen him mention the highway in previous chapters. Chapter 11, verse 16. There will be a highway for the remnant of his people who will be left from Assyria as it was for Israel in the day that he came up from the land of Egypt. Isaiah 19, verse 23. In that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. And the Assyrian will come into Egypt and the Egyptian into Assyria and the Egyptians will serve with the Assyrians. And then he'll mention the highway again in Isaiah 40, verse 3. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Isaiah 40, which of course uh, uh, points to John the Baptist. Isaiah 62, verse 10, he'll mention it again. Go through, go through the gates. Prepare the way for the people. Build up, build up the highway, it says. Take out the stones. Lift up a banner for the peoples. You see, in our day and time, we take good roads for granted. But in ancient times, a good road, known as a highway, was a tremendous blessing for travelers and businessmen. A highway signified progress as well. It signified progress. Isaiah declares that in Messiah's reign and service, there will be a road known as the highway of holiness. The way into God's presence, you see, is ever the way of holiness. The way into God's presence. We're told in the book of Hebrews that, you know, that holiness is important because without holiness we shall not see the Lord. So holiness is important. How we live our lives. But in fact, the Hebrew word for highway indicates exactly what the English word means. A high way. High. A, a raised road, a built-up road that is lifted above the ground. A high and a glorious road on which to travel. The construction of this highway of holiness was the greatest engineering feat ever accomplished, honestly. I understand where I'm coming from when I tell you this. 
the construction of this highway of holiness was the greatest engineering feat ever accomplished. Commenting on this feat, Charles Spurgeon, the great British preacher, wrote this. He said, engineering has done much to tunnel mountains and bridge abysses, but the greatest triumph of engineering is that which made a way from sin to holiness, from death to life, from condemnation to perfection. Who could make a road over the mountains of our iniquities but Almighty God? None but the Lord of love would have wished it. None but the God of wisdom could have devised it. None but the God of power could have carried it out. What a, wow, what a marvelous statement about the engineering of the highway of holiness. To make a way from sin to holiness, from death to life, from condemnation to perfection. But as Isaiah puts it, the highway isn't for everyone. It says the unclean shall not pass over it. The unclean shall not pass over it. Only those cleansed by the saving work of the Messiah himself will be allowed to travel this road. In other words, you won't make it on this highway by paying your own way. It's not a toll booth type of situation. It's not a toll road. I'll pay my way. I'll make my way. You know that a lot of people think today that they're going to go to heaven because of what they do. I'm, 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 I'm going to weigh out my, my good uh, deeds against my bad and I should have more good deeds than my bad so I can go to heaven. A lot of people think that that's how they get to heaven. That's not how you get to heaven. None of us have enough good. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us there's none that is good, no, not one. Which means to say that all our bad is piled up on one side and there's nothing on the good side. There's the scale. It was the blood of Jesus Christ. It was the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It was Jesus' sacrifice as the Lamb of God that, it, that, that changed it all for us to say, I believe that He came to die for my sins. He paid the price. He gave His blood. He gave His body. His body was broken. His blood was shed. Everything that Jesus did was for our salvation. We didn't pay for it. The highway to holiness does not have a toll booth because the price has been paid by Jesus Christ. So when Messiah reigns, all of his people, Jew and Gentile, will be invited to use this highway. Now there is a concern about the last part of verse 8 as to its translation from the Hebrew. Whoever walks the road, although a fool, shall not go astray. The more modern translation, some of you may have those, prefer to have the fool not walking on the highway at all. <laughs> While the New King James Version, which we're reading, and the King James Version, and as well the English Standard Version, choose to keep the literal thought intact. The literal thought is this. Even though God's work isn't complete in us yet, and in some ways we may still act foolish, we are safe because we are on the highway. And will be helped in keeping us from falling off or straying off course. That is how God works. I, I, I would venture to say that there's none of us here that would admit to not being foolish at some time. We would all have to say, yes, we've all been foolish. And there have been those who have said, you know, because of my foolishness, I need to come to Christ again. No, you just need to lay down your foolishness. Confess your sin. He's faithful and just to forgive you. And get back on the track that God has already made for you. Get back on the highway. People understand this. This is how much God loves us. 
that Christ only died, had to die once for all. He only had to die once. The price was already paid. It doesn't have to be paid again. But we need to go from foolishness into maturity, don't we? Psalm 37, verses 23 and 24 says, The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delights in his way. But look at verse 24. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down. Aren't you glad for that verse? Aren't you glad that there have been times in your life when you've fallen and you've wondered, God, can you forgive this? Of course he can. He already did. And he lifts you up. How many of you have been lifted by the love of Christ from your falls? We should all be raising our hand. We've all fallen. For the Lord upholds him with his hand. Proverbs 24, verses 15 and 16. It says, Do not lie in wait, O wicked man, against the dwelling of the righteous. Do not plunder his resting place. For a righteous man may fall seven times and rise again, but the wicked shall fall by calamity. See, the wicked who never came to Christ, who never knows Jesus, will never be on that road. But the Lord is developing in us wisdom and maturity that will keep us on that road. This is why we need to continue to grow in grace and knowledge and grow in the Word of God. We need to stay there so that we can hear these words of Jude, and Jude, uh, uh, which is one chapter, Jude uh, verses 24 and 25, that says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Who's that? That's the Lord Jesus Christ. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless, before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. Isn't that a wonderful thing? To know that He is able to keep us from stumbling. And even if we've stumbled, He picks us up. And then when, we, when He presents us to His Father, the Father says, faultless. Why faultless? Because the Father sees the blood of Jesus Christ on you. We will not admit ourselves that we're faultless. Can we? We committed a few faults this week, didn't we? How about today? You want to count them? We probably don't have enough fingers. How forgiving is our God? Peter wanted to know. Lord, 70 times, or or, or seven times? And Jesus said 70 times seven. God will forgive. But there's safety, you see. There's safety on the highway of holiness. Look at verses 9 and 10. No lion shall be there. You see, we're looking at the far fulfillment. No lion shall be there. There have been a lot of lions in our, in our, in our short Christian walk, <laughs> hasn't there been? Quite a few lions. We're walking around with a, you know, with, with a whip and a, and a chair every day, right? Seems like it. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast go up on it. It shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing, with everlasting joy on their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow, and Zion shall flee away. As we find ourselves on this highway of holiness, we discover that those on it will be protected from the attacks of lions and ravenous beasts. This particular promise rings so true today because of what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. It rings so true. Listen to the words of Peter in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6. He says, Therefore humble yourselves 
under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you in due time. You see, a lot of the problems that we face, we face because we haven't humbled ourselves before God. We've actually prided ourselves before God. Folks, you have to humble yourself. And he says, casting all your care on him, upon him, for he cares for you. And then he says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion. Seek him whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Resist him. Steadfast. He's a roaring lion. Does a lot of roaring. But you know what Jesus did on the cross? He knocked out his teeth. He might gum you a little bit, but he's not going to devour you if you trust what Jesus did on the cross for you. The lion has no teeth. Can you believe that? Will you believe it? James chapter 4, verses 7 through 10. James says, Therefore submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Have you resisted? You see, a lot of times we play around with the temptations that the Lord, that the, I should say the enemy puts out in front. And, and we kind of like, you know, move toward that temptation. And we're not resisting. And then we, we bite, the, we, we take a bite of the, you know, the, 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 the bait. <laughs> the hook is there and, whoop, and he hooks us. Don't you just love that? No, you should hate it. Because you didn't resist. Now you call out to God, God, rescue me. But you see, we've got to get to the point of resisting. And it says, resist the devil, he'll flee from you. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. He'll lift you up. Not too many people today on TV and radio telling you, hey, everything's okay, everything's cool, everything's fine, everything's lovely, everything's beautiful. And it just, it's okay, God loves you. Yeah, He does. But you know what? We have an enemy that's after our tails all the time. He's after us all the time. And there's times when we have to come to grips with the fact that we did not resist Him and we need to mourn over that so that we can receive that blessing of God to lift us up and say, let's not go that way no more. Now we rejoice. Sometimes, you know, we have to quit acting. You know, there's a spiritual arrogance about us sometimes that says, oh, it's okay, he's already forgiven me. Ah, that just says your heart doesn't mourn over the sin that you committed by resisting God rather than resisting the devil. Are are we getting across this point here? I hope so. All right. Because I have to finish. Those who use the highway of holiness do so to come to where the Lord lives and reigns. Where is that? Zion. The city of Jerusalem. And those who come do so with singing and with everlasting joy on their heads. (laughs) This should be the picture of those who are already on that highway today. Coming into his courts with praise. That's why I said the other day how important it is for us to just praise God when we come in here. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Let us go in and praise the Lord. And there's great reason for this, you see. Because the mention of the ransom of the Lord in verse 10, and the ransom of the Lord shall return. You know what that, that, that word ransom is connected to? In the Hebrew, it is connected to the kinsman redeemer, the goel. And so the ransom of the Lord, those who have been rescued by their kinsman redeemer, In the book of Ruth, it was Boaz. The 
The ransom of the Lord are arriving into Zion, rescued by the Lord, the city of their God and King. And so joy and gladness shall be obtained at our final destination. And sorrow and sighing shall flee. Sorrow and sighing will no longer exist. Revelation 21 verse 4 says, And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. Won't you be glad on that day? Well, haven't we sorrowed enough in this earth? Haven't we wept enough? Haven't we seen too much death around us? There shall be no more crying, no more death, no more sorrow. There shall be no more pain for the former things have passed away. Isn't that a beautiful picture? The highway of holiness. You want to know who the highway is? Jesus in John 14, 6 said, I am the way. There it is. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the highway of holiness.